The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. A historic weekend in the Premier League where Tottenham finally managed to beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge for the first time in the league since February 1990. We'll analyse how they did it and the rest of the weekend in the top flight, including more brilliance for Mo Salah, rare joy for West Ham in the East London Athletic Stadium and a terrifying statement of power from the Manchester City supermen who are our footballing superiors. After that, Sam Wallace talks us through his meeting with Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp, the subject of an exclusive interview in The Telegraph this week. Plus, a look ahead to the Champions League quarterfinals, where City and Liverpool and Juventus and Real Madrid meet. Not all at once. But first, back here in The Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by our deputy football correspondent, Jeremy Wilson. Jeremy, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Tom. A, a good Easter, a good break? Yeah, good. Well, yesterday I had a break. Uh, I was at Arsenal today, so it was sort of it wasn't sort of high excitement at Arsenal Stoke today. To be honest, I suppose it's a big game for Stoke, but um, yeah. And then I'm I'm here, so it's been it's been it's been it's not been that much different than a normal weekend, really. Bank holidays mean very little in the world of football. I ate an M and M's Easter egg this morning. That was the only movement from a normal weekend. (laughs) Other other Easter eggs are available and probably recommended. I don't know if I'd go for an M and M's one. Uh, We will get to the Arsenal game you're at, Jeremy. But we'll start at Stamford Bridge. A very impressive victory from Spurs. Three one, one goal down. just not of the races in the first half, but they seize control in really thrilling fashion in the second half. Obviously, this is a huge deal for their supporters to get the hoodoo and curse off their back, the 1990 thing. How much do you think it will mean to the manager and the players at the club, though? I think it is an important result. I think you do get these games that are sort of stage posts in a in a, in a a team's development. And I think going to a really big you know, Chelsea are a big rival to to Tottenham. Not not maybe not quite as much as Arsenal, but going to Chelsea, defending champions. I think that history of that game a few years ago when they were close to Leicester and winning the league, there was always that feeling that Chelsea would a bit like Chelsea have had over Arsenal as well. I think that Chelsea have had over all the London clubs really that they're the they're the whatever the history of Spurs and Arsenal the, the the moment they're the sort of powerhouses and have been for the last decade most of the time. So I think it is a to go to one of those clubs. It would you know been the same if they'd gone to a Manchester City or something like that. To to but to go and make I know Chelsea have got their own issues at the moment, but I think it was I think those types of matches do grow a squad, do grow a team. So you know it's not it's not everything, but I think it is a significant moment. Quite a spell for Delhi Alley in the last few months, but what a return to form here. Took his first goal beautifully, made space very intelligently for his second goal. Do you think the potential loss of his place in England's starting lineup will be a motivator for him? I think it will be, yeah. I think it should be. I don't I don't think his season's it's his season's been okay. It's not been as bad as it sort of sometimes is portrayed if he is statistics and whatever and, and and he he's part of a, a, a very good team. Uh, but he's not quite, quite kicked on the way how he looked like he might a year or two ago, and I think there is that, 
you, you get that slight undercurrent occasionally from Pochettino. He talked about um, distractions or so, something along those lines. He hinted at certainly influences outside of football on, on Deli Ali. Talked about the number of people that surround him. I think it was, and it wasn't that. It wasn't sort of a a, a particular critic, sort of attack on Ali or anything like that. He obviously, they obviously have a good relationship, but it was a sort of subtle thing about his focus I felt when he when he said that and um and I think that what with what's hap- what happened at in- with England I think that will because he's obviously got huge ability but he does you know he's he's one of the English players that you look at that could that could make that step to being a genuine force in a world cup so we're sort of judging him by slightly higher standards than a lot of players and I think that that next that next uh, step forward that you have a lot of faith in someone like Harry Kane to make because of the, his sort of mentality and his sort of dedication. I think Rooney didn't make it. I think partly to do with his sort of a weakness in, in it, as much as we can understand it. It's hard to obviously get behind what they do every day, but I think a sort of weakness in his sort of off-field preparation. I think that stopped him from being sort of great at Premier League level, maybe only very good on the international stage, and uh, and, and to. You know, we obviously need two or three players to make that step, and I think Deli Ali's one with Sterling as well that's got the potential to do that. So we're judging them by a high sort of tariff, but and, and I think that sort of pressure will probably help him to to do that because I think it is a bit when you get to that point, it's not easy to sort of add that extra bit, and I think it is a lot between the ears really when when you get to that stage. Slightly surprised to see Antonio Conte giving it the full Antonio Conte on the touchline, especially in the first half, up and down, lots of gesticulating. Is that he must know he's off at the end of the season, right? It, it seems slightly odd to me that he's still going through with with all this, uh, you know, crazy dedication. Is that is that yeah, just a mark of his professionalism? I don't. I think it would be more odd if he wasn't like Antonio Conte on the touchline because he is always like that, and I think he does feel like it has an influence on his team that, that whole thing I think he does feel like he affects games whether you know, the extent to which he really does is obviously debatable I think at times it does uh, I think it, w- it would be more odd if he wasn't acting like that because he's, he's you know, if he is to leave he's still obviously looking at his own I mean his record is phenomenal in the last five or six years winning the, the league with Juventus I think three years in a row then going to Italy then winning the league with Chelsea basically I know that he didn't Sort of win a tournament with Italy, but he had a fairly average Italy squad, as we've discovered subsequently, and he and he got them to reasonable stage of uh, the Euros. So I think that his career in the last five years is up with Guardiola or Mourinho. If you look at it, if you say in the top or Klopp or whoever, he's in the top three or four managers in the world. So his own sort of pride is is going to be quite wounded by the likelihood that Chelsea will finish fifth. So whatever the wider and whatever he knows or doesn't know about what Chelsea might do. I mean, he's still got a contract, so he's you know, whether they've had that conversation about what, what next, I don't know. So it's you know, he, he'll be thinking about his next job, and clearly with what he's done, he's not going to want to sort of be less attractive to the, the absolute elite clubs, which is where he, he, he will obviously be hoping to go to still. Across London on Sunday, it was Arsenal 3, Stoke nil at Ashburton Grove. Jeremy, you were at this game. Um, fair to say Arsenal slightly <laughs> flattered by the result? Yeah, for 75 minutes. I mean, they were. you felt like they knew that they were playing on Thursday against CSK Moscow in the quarterfinal of the Europa League and that that competition is their season now. And you could, you could feel that, certainly in the attendance. 
and the sort of general, the team selection, there was quite a few key players rested and also in the way they approached it for the first 60 minutes. Having said that, they were still, did have most of the ball, probably most of the chances, but it was a brilliant opportunity for Stoke and it was obviously a massive game for them and and I, I thought a real missed opportunity. In the last 30 minutes, Arsenal were pretty dominant. 3-0 was quite quite flattering on the overall balance of play, but they could have scored. They made quite a lot of chances at the end of the game. So, yeah, it was a it was a lucky penalty that they got to go ahead, and that was the key moment. But the interesting thing that was Lacazette came on after 61 minutes. He's been out for a few months with after knee surgery, and he played up with Aubameyang, which. Wenger's not really done this season and they look really, you know, it looked like a viable way of organising the team. He, Who would make way for that? Well, Aubameyang sort of played more off the left and he has he did do that earlier in his career and he did it when um, for quite a while when he was at Dortmund with Lewandowski and he, he did it as an Etienne. There was, it was quite an interesting sort of thing at the end of the game because Aubameyang was on for a hat-trick and uh, he'd, he'd scored the first goal with a penalty and he actually gave Lacazette the ball to take the third goal. And and it's sort of suggested because Lacazette had come in as the club record signing, then Aubameyang signed the next transfer window as the club record signing, which you would think might create a, a certain amount of tension. And I, I thought Aubameyang was clearly trying to say, I'm going to try and help Lacazette. It's a team thing. You know, how long that lasts, I don't know. But it's uh, it was quite, I thought that was quite encouraging, really. And he's, he obviously got the point that, what matters is the Europa League on Thursday. He's ineligible for the Europa League. So it was quite important because Lacazette had not played for two months. It, it, before that, he'd been on a bit of a goal-scoring drought and it was important really for him to get a goal ahead of Thursday and Aubameyang sort of got that. So that that was quite interesting at the end of the game. What do you make of the empty seats? It's You know, season ticket holders are probably resting themselves a little bit for the Europa <laughs> League on Thursday and may have chosen to it enjoy was, a lamb dinner with their family on Sunday. But it, was, uh, it was raised to Wenger, actually, and he came up with every conceivable sort of explanation of, he said, it's the you know, it's Easter, it's a family time, which obviously never really creates empty seats on Boxing Day. And then he <laughs> said, and then he, he said, maybe the, the international break, you know, there'd been a few weeks off as if, Sort of people's diaries would have been confused by the <laughs> sort of return of the Premier League after, the, but eventually he just said, "Well, it's because they kind of know where we're going to finish in the Premier League," and uh, uh, which is, I think, the main reason, as well as that sort of underlying um, feeling that things aren't improving under Wenger. But I think, I mean, more telling will be Thursday because that's a m- massive game in Arsenal's uh, season. It's the chance to win a trophy, the chance to get in the Champions League. And then, and then the chance for maybe Wenger to try and sort of create a case for himself to stay for another season. So, which which obviously fans will have various opinions about. So that would be more telling. I mean, Wenger was very bullish about that. He said they'll be back. Don't worry on Thursday. It's quite an interesting debate because a few journalists were tweeting about you know what what it says about fan culture and all the rest of it. Would Newcastle fans leave you know tens of thousands of empty seats if they were in the Europa League? quarterfinal but they were sixth in the league and all that sort of and it was there's quite a feisty debate I noticed on Twitter about it all there is such a thing as playing Stoke City too many times I <laughs> yeah. uh, another team who know exactly where they're going to finish in the league this season are your Premier League champions Manchester City what struck me watching their 3-1 victory at Everton was you would expect this City team to be all about short passing and lovely skill but it's actually quite route one at times isn't it the second goal especially Sane drifting into the middle, goal kick, passing it out wide, 
De Bruyne onto Jesus, whole length of the pitch in about four seconds, just brutal. Have you ever seen a team play quite like this before in this country? Maybe not in the way that City play, that sort of possession style of football. I thought that Chelsea for a period under Mourinho were were as sort of reliable, you felt like they were as reliable as certain to just sort of steamroller everyone, but they did it in a different way. And it, and actually they they hold the record, I think it's 95 points, isn't it? The record points tally that City looked like they might, they might be. Arsenal, for all their um, nice football of the Invincible team, were actually never quite as, they, there was a vulnerability about them that they're possibly... There certainly wasn't about that Chelsea team. Didn't have a sense of inevitability. Yeah, and the same, I think, with this Manchester City team. But I think it's with these teams, it's their work out out of possession as well that's really really key, that creates that space. That was always Barcelona's big strength. And I think it's the same with Tottenham and Liverpool a bit as well, to a lesser extent. Mm. They have the ball hypnotised, wrote Jim White, (laughs) rather beautifully in his match report. Uh, Do you expect them to win the league at Man United next weekend? Not at Man United, Man United visiting them, of course. Uh, yeah, probably. I think they will. They're not, I suppose it depends a little bit on the Champions League game and I think that will influence things quite a bit because uh, Manchester City know they're going to win the league, basically, eventually. So and it would if, if, if the game against Liverpool is really delicately poised and it's a really draining game, and it's, but if they're in a comfortable position after the first leg, then that obviously makes them more likely to, to win the league next week. I think they probably will. They don't seem to be getting distracted by much, but that, that would be the sort of question mark. That's the, And I suppose Mourinho would be desperate to make sure that they don't sort of do it against his team. You know, he's quite... You know, his pride is obviously... His ego, is probably, is, as we know, is pretty large. So I, I, I think he'll be really determined to, to, to sort of find a way to stop them and yeah it's just I think it's just that that timing with the Champions League game that makes me think that makes me wonder whether there might be a, a sort of upset there yeah shouldn't rule out a total party pooping on Sunday down at the other end of the table West Ham United 3 Southampton nil. this should have been a tight nervy game how did West Ham end up such comfortable winners yeah really a quite worrying game for Southampton I suppose West Ham Sometimes I think when you had that really sort of uh, disastrous moment, what feels like a real, it can't get any worse than that. Usually it's so severe, the kind of the the debate afterwards and all the soul searching that's gone on and the shock actually to the whole club. And I think West Ham experienced one of those sort of games really with with all the protests and the, all the anger that was directed at the at the board. So... There was somehow there was an extra pressure and urgency on them, and I think that worked to their advantage a, a bit yesterday. It was like it felt like the biggest game of the season for West Ham and Southampton. I don't know. I mean, it was a huge game for them, really, but it somehow I don't know because because they'd made the managerial change. There was just a slight feeling, oh, it's you know, it should be okay now. But are their fans happy? They're in. They're happy. There's a change. It's quite mixed the the reaction to Hughes. I mean, foot, most football fans aren't really happy with with that. <laughs> Unless you with support Manchester City, you're not you're not sort of happy. I, 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 I mean, yeah, it's, uh, there there was definitely a mixed bag. Actually, I think we did quite a lot of the Hughes stories first, and so we got I got quite a lot of the reaction on my timeline on Twitter. And I mean, it's quite an unscientific feel, but. The overwhelming sense was they wanted a change, and that maybe Hughes was as good as 
as good as they could get. It kind of made sense in a way because there wasn't. It was it is in a way it's an even bigger gamble to go for somebody outside the Premier League with just a few games left. So and then, and really then when you boil down to who was available, it was Hughes. And actually Hughes, I think he. I, I know that QPR fans might not agree with me about this, <laughs> but if you look at Hughes's track record, I think there's a lot of managers that just you know Allardyce is rubbish, Moyes is rubbish, Redknapp's rubbish, Hughes is rubbish. You know you get a lot of that. And actually, you look through their work. Hughes in most of his clubs has, has done pretty has done pretty well. Fulham was a success. Um, Blackburn was a success. Wales was a success. Uh, the, these, these all drops that were quite a while ago. QPR wasn't a su- success. Stoke possibly Stoke, going down. Southampton possibly Stoke, going down. Both think, managed by Mark Hughes in the but same season. Again, season. I think that St- I, I used to cover like Gordon Strachan and people, Coventry fans would. Yeah, they finished in the top. Top half loads of times under or a few times under Strachan. Okay, they get rid. But clubs like. Coventry and Stoke and Southampton do flirt with relegation. It's what you know. It's it's what happens to the other fourteen clubs outside the top six every so often. Hughes finished in the top ten, I think it was three times at Stoke. They were something like fourteenth last season and were in a relegation scrap this season. But if you add up those those seasons, I don't think you that that equals Hughes did a bad job. I think that equals Hughes did a good job generally at Stoke. So I think I think fans are incredibly harsh sometimes when they look at managerial records just depends how badly you've been burned by specific <laughs> managers doesn't it uh, I know you cover this a little bit in your Monday column uh, Jeremy but it's the lesson with Southampton and their potential relegation you just need to be readjusting your strategy constantly I mean what worked so well for them in 2013 doesn't necessarily go yeah. at all well in 2018 I think there's two things on that and I don't think I don't think they've done a terrible job or because I think the last 10 5 10 years have been up there with the best in Southampton's time. They were going to Wembley in the FA Cup semi-final and the League Cup final last year. So there's 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 that, and you you are going to have a seasons where you flirt with relegation. But something's obviously gone wrong, and they're in big trouble because they've got a really hard run in. They look more likely to go down than stay up at the moment. So it's a, a no one's hiding from it. It's been a mistakes have been made. I think the two things where they've got it a bit wrong is I think with the managers, I think I think there's always a tendency to hire a manager who you think is really good. You think, oh yeah, I, I like all that sports science. I like all that. You know, for, for Andrew Villas-Boas, I think, wowed a few directors in his time with his PowerPoint presentation. And I think sometimes directors forget that the person that they're appointing needs to connect to a load of 20-year-old footballers and actually a PowerPoint presentation that might impress them might have absolutely no impact on those footballers. And I think that with Southampton, they got a, maybe got a bit too clever with, they thought that Puel and Pellegrino were very progressive, intelligent. Actually, when it comes down to it, did they have the personality to maybe maybe frighten a little bit, maybe control a little bit, but certainly direct and the authority, a group of footballers. And I think they, I think they underestimated that a bit. And then I think with their player strategy just I mean it's pretty it's been effective and it's been fairly clever but I think I think the risk they had is by being a by being seen as a stepping stone type of club if you attract lots of players who must also know that Southampton have been seen as a stepping stone club to Champions League football if they're not quite then good enough to move on or you try and keep them sort of against their will as they did with Van Dyke. What you're sort of left with maybe a few too many players who worry about themselves a bit more than the club, and I think that that could be an issue. But I think they've 
got a lot of players there that maybe thought that they would move on more quickly than they have and either they've not had the offers or and I think that's caused a, a dynamic that's a, a problem for them. Down to Selhurst Park, it was Palace 1, Liverpool 2 on Saturday at lunchtime. Tale of two strikers, really, wasn't it, Jeremy? Salah, extremely clinical. Benteke, not so much. Uh, what's impressed you most about Mo Salah this season? Just that he, I mean, I suppose you've got to, whoever, whoever really was behind that signing at Liverpool did an unbelievable job of recruitment because nobody, it was like Salah's going to Liverpool and he thought, what was it, 20, 30 million? Oh, he's a sort of club he's going to finish fourth or fifth type of signing rather than a Manchester City, Barcelona, Real Madrid type of signing. And actually, he's probably been the best striker in Europe this season. I mean, I think he's got more guys. He's got 29 now, which is ahead of Messi. And the way he plays, I know that it's ridiculous to compare anyone to Messi, but if Messi had joined Liverpool last summer and done what what Salah had done, we'd all be saying, yeah, that's exactly what we'd expect. You know, it's, I mean, he has played for, for that period of his career, this short period of his career he's played at that that type of level so I th- it's I suppose it's just the it's just the difference between what we all expected him to do and to what he's actually delivered I mean he's clear I think he's I went I've gone through like three phases of who should be the footballer of the year and like the Kevin De Bruyne phase obviously and then you get and then Silver I thought actually he's what makes City tick he's a bit like Iniesta and Xavi were at Barcelona he's a bit underappreciated but actually, I think it has to be Salah now, even though he's not in the team that's going to win the league, because he's just as an individual. It's an individual award; it's not a team award. You know, uh, he's been, I think, the outstanding individual, and so unexpected as well. Manchester United two, Swansea City nil on Saturday. Goal for Alexis Sanchez, his first for two months. Uh, you saw plenty of him at Arsenal, Jeremy. Do you think he's going to come good at United? I'm not sure, really. I I always thought that all the fuss that Man United made about him, all that that silly video with him like playing the piano and all that kind of thing as if they'd brought it was as if they'd brought Messi to Old Trafford actually they'd brought a player who was good but a bit below a bit below sort of Aguero and a bit below Kane and a bit below De Bruyne in terms of his impact in the Premier League who there's question marks about his sort of personality and his the way he integrated into a team as well you know Wenger is quite forgiving of people who are not the most you know who who can be quite selfish type of players and and even and even at Arsenal you got a very clear sense that players and staff felt that he was quite self-orientated and you think well how will that work with Mourinho who's who's a lot harder on that kind of thing than Wenger is so I'm not I'm not that surprised that he's not I think that given the salary that they managed to he managed to extract out of it and the sort of the this promotion around the deal. I thought it was a bit out of kilter with the quality of the player they were getting. He's a good, you know, a good sort of eight out of ten Premier League player, but not a kind of nine or ten. I don't think I don't think he was in the absolute. I think he's in the next band down of the best Premier League players. So I, I kind of thought the expectation was a bit out of kilter with how with what he was likely to deliver. I mean, Barcelona chose to sell him you know, uh, to Arsenal. Arsenal. Okay, he was Arsenal's best player for the time he was there, but Arsenal were only finishing, sort of down, not, not challenging to win the league or the Champions League in that, in that time. So I'm not sure what led Manchester United to think he was going to be the sort of key to, to winning those two big trophies, really, because he he wasn't. You know, Barcelona concluded he wasn't, and he didn't he didn't inspire Arsenal to that ultimately. 
Elsewhere, we've got a few teams now who can probably start planning for next season. Newcastle beat Huddersfield. Leicester beat Brighton. Watford drawing with Bournemouth. All probably safe now in the Premier League. Also, West Brom losing at home to Burnley. Almost certainly down. How much difference will likely knowing where they're going to be next season be making to what's going on behind the scenes at those clubs at the moment? Will they be sort of thinking about transfer strategies already now? Yeah, definitely. They all, even, I mean, the ones obviously West Brom probably a bit more advanced in knowing where they're likely to be than uh, than than any of the others. But all of them, I would imagine, have a at the very least a sort of working towards two plans. And they've worked out who they're going to panic by next January. Yeah, they they would have worked out there. They're they're, they're they're all quite sophisticated now in terms of what they're you know whether it all pans out exactly as they they want to and 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 the sort of how how well those signings work is another debate but they will have there there's enough staff who work in these recruitment departments they're big departments there's enough people thinking about it and they will they will have they will have a, a plan for the premier league and a plan for the championship for sure by by now brighton would quite quite openly tell people that that they've that they you know they were at the start of last season were planning for relegation or staying up they were they were telling their staff that they have to be resilient this year because you'll get thumped a bit. You know, the team won't, we won't sort of, it won't be like it was in the championship. Radical transparency comes to the Premier League. Chief football writer Sam Wallace met Jurgen Klopp this week for an exclusive interview which ran in Saturday's Telegraph. Sam joins us now. Big week coming up for Klopp, Sam, with games against Man City, then Everton. Did he seem in any way stressed? Uh, no, I have to say he didn't. It was, uh, mind you, it was uh, sort of Thursday, Thursday lunchtime. But um, he's, um, I think he, I think he does. You know, I mean, we obviously see his demeanour on the touchline. Um, I have to say, Melwood as a training ground is a very welcoming place. It's not quite the fortress that uh, that you encounter elsewhere. Um, it's still relatively small. It was sort of rebuilt in the Julier era, but you know you walk around and um, and and everyone sort of shares the same common places. You know the, the players and the staff and the manager and so on. So it's a different kind of vibe there. And um, yeah, he was he was on good form. He's got a particularly honed public persona, hasn't he? We're all familiar with what he's like in press conferences and TV interviews. Did you see another side to him just on one on one? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I, I mean. Uh, Obviously, when you're when you're in a press conference, you have to take your turn, and and other people have different ideas about what they want to talk about. But um, I felt I feel that he's very open. You know, I think he's he's actually um, he's been a pundit. He was he was pretty. He, he kind of came to national fame really in Germany as a at the 2006 World Cup when he was a pundit for ZDF, uh, one of their national broadcasters, and and he, he was still relatively unknown. He was a second division manager then, and I think he I think he understands a bit about newspapers and the wider media. He um he actually famously when he was a Mainz player he 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 did an internship at a TV station so I think he understands that you know you know that there's a value in being open and and there's a value in in talking and and maybe it's a German thing as well you know they are they they do they do tend to um they tend to be less guarded I have to find a lot of the leading sort of German managers and and players we hear a lot about the importance of philosophy for managers. What did you glean about Klopp's? And do you think that's a holistic thing for him, which runs past his football and actually kind of bleeds into his personal life? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. I mean, I, 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 as with you know anyone really, if you just go back to their sort of formative years, and he spent ten years as a as a Mainz player um, in the second division in, in Germany, never got never played in the top flight, um, and really he was playing on a sort of 
year-to-year contract. He earned very little money. Uh, they were fighting for their lives and relegation-wise every season. They managed to to stay in the second division. But he 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 made that point. He said, "Look, I." The end of every season, it was if we were th- if we were safe with three games to go, at least we could plan our holidays, and we knew we had a job for the next year. So I think I think those kind of that kind of experience was crucial for him because it was you were playing for your livelihood, and and that didn't change much in his in his first couple of years as a manager. He, he they had very little resources as a club, and and I think that 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 sort of um, sense of the of unity and togetherness that he learned. In, in his playing career is, is really kind of important to him now as a manager. Sam, you, you mentioned that about Melwood and I think in your piece you mentioned the, the sort of pitches that Paisley and Shankly had had, had worked on as mm. well. How, how much do you think he sort of clicks into that history of Liverpool and might try and use that to his advantage maybe against Manchester City? He seemed to do that with Dortmund a bit, that using the sort of supporters and the, and the sort of culture of a club to his advantage. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. I think I think the main part of that is Anfield. I think that's you know that it is although it has been rebuilt in parts, it is still a very very noisy ground and on the um, on the on the big nights. And I think he understands that. And obviously that was something that Dortmund really had as well. Um, I, I think as Liverpool manager, you have to tip your hat to your predecessors because their their legacy is so immense. Um, uh, but but he's no he's he's not he's no sentimentalist you know he he understands how tough it is and how it's eaten a lot of people up and I think I think you have to be that kind of personality I mean apart from being a, obviously a very very capable coach I think you do need to carry that club you you need that that personality to be able to stand on the touchline of a club that's won so much in the past and say no this is how we're going to do it these are the right decisions and and to carry people along with you. Because um, there will be difficult times, and, and obviously, you know, he's had, it, it, we, we kind of forget that they sold Coutinho this season. He was their best player, and we didn't even talk about that because it feels it feels like things have moved on so quickly. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. To go back to the original point, I think I think that does his sort of persona makes a big difference. What do you think playing for him's like? I think he's great. It must be great. I mean, I, 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 I think he's very he's very blunt with people. I mean, there's the sort of um, the, uh, the the joke about the uh, about getting a hug and and how Gerard and Carragher that that sort of the joke that they that they would have loved that really but I think I think the big thing about him is is just how disciplined he is I mean I've heard it said that a lot of German managers they really they they get an idea of you as a player and they don't they don't they don't see they see you in one position that that's a characteristic I think a lot of 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 Klopp certainly that um he, he's and there's a there's a very interesting line in the uh, Rafa Hernigstein biography which is really good um where he's where um Gundogan is talking about how Klopp has a rule that if you wake up and you you know you you've got a pain in your in your calf or you've even just got a headache you must ring the doctor there and then and you go in to training to you know two hours before. And they will either they'll check you out, and they'll might they might well send you home because especially if it's an illness, they don't want you to affect. And Gundogan just talks about how once he mentioned he had a bit of a pain half an hour before a training session, how cross Klopp was with him initially. He's very much a. There's a lot of procedure there. He he's he's a graduate in sports science. He likes things done a certain way, and he's very very strict about it. And it kind of reminded me of the story about Pep uh, Guardiola and how he, the players are weighed before training, and if they're over a certain weight, they don't train. So I think, I, I, although he is this sort of 
great kind of larger than life personality he he has a methodology which is pretty unyielding good insight sam thank you very much for joining us okay the telegraph total football podcast in association with lion trust specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions remember investments can fall as well as rise all footballing roads lead to Europe this week as the Champions League quarterfinals arrive with hype, fanfare and an actual theme tune. European football journalist Mina Razuki is with us to look ahead. Mina, Liverpool versus Man City is the standout tie for our British podcast fans. How do you see that one panning out? I actually have no idea because this is one where, let's be honest, Liverpool are the only side to have inflicted defeat on Manchester City. And we know that they have the firepower. We know that the attacking Trident can do anything. And while they've shored up the defence, you can see that they're not conceding as much as they have. It, it is really tough to watch Manchester City and all their players when they do hit peak form and then they start rotating the ball, go out wide. You've seen Liverpool suffer at times when they are faced with uh, pacey wingers. So if Manchester City play with speed, speed of thought, and just pace in, in the way that they run and continue to be direct, I can see Liverpool conceding a few. It's whether or not they can outscore the opponent. Leaving aside your horrendous slander of Wigan there, who also beat Manchester uh, City this year, Mina, uh, th- this will this will surely <laughs> Premier League, Premier League, Premier League. <laughs> fair enough, well clarified. Uh, th- this will surely be an excellent attacking game at the very least between these two. A good spectacle. Yeah, there's a part of me that's really happy that these two face each other because it's going to be such an entertaining game because of their, their philosophy of football. They are all out to attack. But another part of me is disappointed that they didn't follow, uh, that they didn't get drawn against other European giants where we were just seeing how they would have adapted against different opponents. Let's say if they faced a Bayern Munich or a Barcelona, would their attacking philosophy be challenged? Would they fail because of it or actually do well because of it? So that was really what I wanted to see, just to see how they would have adapted to European competition. Having said that, this is going to be a match, in my opinion, that's going to be all about the goals. Both these sides don't want to defend, but they do want to score. Yeah, very good point on uh, wanting to see them up against the European elite. Uh, Obviously, we're used to this game in the Premier League. Do you think the other teams that are still in the competition will be hoping Liverpool knock City out, or are Jurgen Klopp's side also regarded as very dangerous and one to avoid? I think it depends, actually, in which country you're looking at. Um, Obviously, when, you know, the Bundesliga rage Jurgen Klopp's side, uh, let's see, Italy prefers, all thinks Manchester City is really the scary one, that they have a little bit more balance or the way that they control the ball is with such technique that they're more fearful of them. So it depends really on what, um, what country we're talking about. Obviously, with Liverpool, I think their defensive uh, problems and the fragility at the bank, especially earlier in the season, was something that many thought that they could overcome at the time. Some newspapers have written to say Sevilla, Liverpool and Roma were the weakest opponents, but I think they're, they're vastly underestimating a side that has probably one of the best attacks in the world. Quite. It's the glamour clash on Tuesday, meaning your beloved Juventus against Real Madrid. Are you confident in your team's chances this year? Oh, God, absolutely not, no. Um, (laughs) Juventus do do very well when it comes to two-legged ties against Real Madrid. I think they've won the last four, actually, against them. They're not very good in 90 minutes, but very good over 180. They're a side for a marathon, not for the sprints. But this this team is not as balanced as it once was, especially when you compare it to last season. 
They're a side that seem to really rely on a few minutes of excellent play and some individual moments of brilliance, whether that be Higuain or Dybala to score a goal and just close out the game. The difference is that, you know, you saw that over the weekend as well. They were poor against Milan, but they only needed a few minutes, you know, born on, on Quadrado, born on Douglas Costa, and they changed their tie within 20 minutes. The problem is, is obviously when it's Spurs and Milan, you can say, OK, you can do that. But I'm not sure you can do that against Ronaldo's side. So Real Madrid, if you know, they do have defensive problems this season. They haven't always been at their fluent best. But Zinedine Zidane knows Allegri's side and is tactically prepared. Usually we saw that in the Champions League final. And I really think that his men will get the better of Juventus this this time around. They're, they're not quite where they were a year ago either, though, Real, right? No, absolutely not. But what we can say is that this time they have nothing to challenge for. They're out of the Copa del Rey. They're out of uh, the uh, obviously the title race because Barcelona are so far ahead. So they're putting all their eggs into this one basket. They have to do something special. Of course, everyone what everyone keeps talking about is who's going to line up. Will it be Bale? Will it be Isco, who is just stupendous for Spain? Will it be Vasquez or Asensio? At the moment, you know, all of Spain is talking about the fact that Fiorentino Perez really needs Bale to, to play this game because they need to start getting his value to be pushed back up. So if they do sell him, they do make money. So that's kind of what everyone is concentrated on in Spain at the moment. And this is the side that they didn't want to face. Real Madrid really didn't want to face a side as defensive and tactically balanced as Juventus. But as we saw from Spurs, they are not that strong at the back, not like they once were. They, you know, they do have a great attacking force in the sense that they have so many people they can go off the bench. But they're missing Giorgio Canini, which is huge in defense because, you know, he's suspended. Sorry, not Giorgio Canini, rather, it's Medi Benatia. And Marilyn Pjanic, who's their creative force in midfield. Without him, you don't have that, uh, that ability to link up play. So perhaps it's a blessing in disguise because a player like Claudio Marquisio will come in. But these are two huge absences, a great centre-back in Benatia and a great midfielder in Pjanic. How have Roma performed this season in Syria and are they likely to present many problems for Barcelona? Roma are one of those sides where it's a bit like Sevilla. We have no idea which version of Roma is going to show up. They're not perhaps a team that's filled with you know exceptional stars in the way that Juventus are or possess the style of play that Napoli does. So they haven't done so well. Sometimes they can do some play beautiful football, get all the goals, and really thrash the opponent, as we saw, actually, in the group stages. What they did to Atletico Madrid and to Chelsea to win that group is a tough ask, and they managed it. When they are at their peak, they're very good. They've also defeated Napoli this season, and they play good football. They have Erin Dzeko, obviously, Chengiz Under, who's, who's their star signing and who's really coming into optimum condition at the moment. The problem is, is that they are facing Barcelona, who don't even need to be at their best to win. They only need one mistake or two for Messi to score. We saw, Messi, uh, we saw Barcelona suffering at times against Sevilla, but then Messi comes in, it's a miracle, and it's all done and dusted. I don't think that Roma have enough, but I do think that they can score goals. So it remains to be seen on a mental level whether they will feel they have enough or if they're going to be so intimidated that they can't play their style of football and fail immediately. It's about really, for me, their mental ability, whether or not they can challenge or at least produce something to, to, to scare Barcelona or whether they'll give in pretty quickly. No such goal-scoring problems for Sevilla. Wissam Ben Yedder has scored more goals than anyone else in the competition this season, apart from Cristiano Ronaldo. Do you give his side any chance against Bayern Munich over two legs? Well, it would be nice if he would start. Um, Montella still seems to depend on Luis Muriel. 
I don't know whether he's just going to again start with Morel and then just introduce Ben Yedder in the, in the last 20 minutes hoping for some sort of miracle. But Sevilla are again another side where you have no idea what, what form, uh, what side is going to actually show up. We saw them against Manchester United. They only need a few minutes sometimes to score a couple of goals when Ben Yedder is on the pitch. But they have been a side that have been defensively frail at times. And more importantly, they can't clinical efficiency at the top. So they create opportunity after opportunity. So many goal-scoring opportunities. Against Barcelona, I think they had 21 shots, but they only scored two goals. That's their problem. Finishing. Actually finishing off those chances and doing something special at the very top, that remains to be seen. And we're talking about Bayern's side that just destroyed Borussia Dortmund over the weekend. And if they play Javier Rodriguez deeper in that midfield and go all out attack with his creativity, imagination and ability on the ball, I do not see Sevilla surviving this. <laughs> Does sound alarmingly like all four favourites going through. Thank you very much for joining us, Mina. Thank you. Time now for your Hero of the Week and if you have yet to watch highlights from Zlatan Ibrahimovic's first game for the Los Angeles Galaxy, I must implore you to do so as soon as this podcast has concluded. Zlatan's new team were 3-1 down when he came on as a 71st minute substitute. He helped set up a goal shortly after coming on and scored an absolutely ridiculous half volley then headed in the winner as his team won 4-3. Let's have a listen to what he had to say afterwards. When you lose 3-0 the adrenaline is pumping even more because you want to you want to be be able to do something, help the team, help especially when it's when they're in a difficult situation. And I just wanted to come in, and then the fans were demanding something, and and I gave them Zlatan. <laughs> Great stuff from Zlatan, Jeremy. If you were a fantastic footballer and you had your pick, where would you choose to finish your career? Uh, I'd have to be at Southampton because it's the sort of club I first went to and the one that I supported. It'd be better if it was at the Dell, but there we go. We can't have everything. All the glamour of Southampton. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, you know, maybe finishing up by sort of keeping them up on the final day of the season or something like that. But yeah, it would have to be Southampton. Take that, Los Angeles. That's all from this week's episode of Total Football. We'll be back with you same time next week inside your portable listening device in time for your Monday morning commute. If you feel an urgent need to contact me before then, head over to twitter.com and look for at Tom with an H Gibbs. Don't forget to subscribe to Total Football and give us five of your hard-earned shiny stars to indicate just how much you're enjoying our work. Polvo are the top band behind our theme tune by their music at mergerecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. Talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. Hello, I'm Brian Moore from Brian Moore's Rugby Podcast. Each week, myself and a host of current and former players tackle the biggest talking points from the world of rugby. We have big name interviews. I think I'm not scared at the moment because I'm still able to do a lot of things. No holds barred opinion. I'm not saying bar it all together. I'm just saying let's end the annual yo-yoing. And we get the inside line from Nigel Owens. My advice would be is look, if you're going to go for that ball and you're going up for the ball and you've got a realistic chance of competing and winning that ball, then yes, go for it. That's Brian Moore's Rugby Podcast. Available every Tuesday morning from Apple Podcasts or wherever you found this podcast.